Hey guys, welcome back. It's Chris Bircher. This is Knowledge Plus Experience Eagles Wisdom. And this is episode 110, again, I think so, as we continue to explore the acid tests using uh, nature to help answer some of the age-old questions that, in my opinion, continue to haunt humankind. And just a little bit of review, and then uh, and this, this episode is going to be about enough. Okay, but I want to do a little bit of review on so the last 10 episodes about the acid test. And then talk a little bit about why I think the other methods haven't provided you know, acceptable results for me. Talk a little bit about the people who I think do think we're fine and don't understand why I would want to do something like this and ask these questions anymore and just let it be. And then talk about the concept of enough in nature, which I've talked about before and I'm really looking forward to. And hopefully I can get it all done in 20 some minutes. Um, so, so far we talked about how I think the human species is in a position where we have a lot of confusion and a lot of what I call cognitive dissonance, you know, a lot of Um, anxiety and depression. And really, this has been going on probably for the last couple hundred years, and I think is correlated somehow to the uh, technological revolution, the industrial revolution, and our capacity to do so much more work than we've ever been able to do before, and and so make these exponential gains in things like technology. And and there are are schools of thought out there, there are people out there, I'll talk about, I'll, I'll mention it now, I guess, who think that we can engineer and tech, tech our way out of all of these problems. But inherent to the acid test is I, I believe that rather than man, humans being separate from nature, that we're actually a part of nature. And, and so we can look to nature, our, our sort of ancestors, right? Our ancestors, the rocks and the insects and the birds and the bacteria and the water that have been here before us and have sort of survived all of the natural conditions to arrive at where we are today using this sort of fundamental belief of Darwin's and natural selection that what we see is a result of things that have been selected for that fit in the environment that continually changes. I remember like 12,000 years ago, there were massive glaciers over like twice as much more land as there are now. I mean, the, the world changes and we have this DNA that allows us to change with it and uh, change ourselves and, and adapt by the literal definition. And so well, the, what I'm really interested in here is how this applies. You know, it's easy to study as an ecologist. This is what I did. Um, it's, it's easy to study sort of how all that stuff fits together. And, and I think it's critical no matter what line of investigation we do, no matter what keyhole you're looking through in your narrow view, little myopic world that we all have limited by ourselves and our circumstances and what we've experienced in our lives. But these, these scientific disciplines and these other disciplines like religion and and spirituality and psychology and um, philosophy and all the different sort of methods of understanding of using our brains to make sense of the world. All of those things have provided various explanations and answers to questions like, why am I here? Who am I? What is our purpose? What what should humans be doing? What is the purpose of life? Is there an afterlife? All of these things, some things we can't answer, some things we can't answer, some things we sort of like, you know, shrug our shoulders and say, who cares? Um, but all of these sort of disciplines, these methodologies that we've used to answer questions are, are become increasingly myopic by definition. 
Um, you know, if you're going to follow one set of rules, like the scientific method or like some religious explanation, then you're ignoring all the other possible explanations. And what I'm trying to do here is, like nature, just sort of say, here's all the genes. Here's all the molecules. Sort them out however you want to see fit. And I'm not saying I'm some magical person that can reduce all of my own personal bias and do this magical. No, that, that would be even more naive than I already am to think I could do that. But I, but I think the natural approach to investigating a question, like I've said before, like I talked about my dissertation work, is to consider as many variables as you can. And it's amazing that 15, 20 years after my dissertation work, I could add twice, three times, four times as many variables in that same analysis again, just because I know so much more now. And so I still think it's important to ask questions about what our purpose is. And sort of, I think the bigger question that's emerging here is also, have humans become so disconnected from the world that we're screwing it up? That we're doing something wrong? Or really, more generally, how are we doing? You know, if the frogs could give us a grade, if the rocks could give us a grade, if the atmosphere could give us a grade, what would they say about our interactions with the natural world from which we come? I think it's really obvious, and I don't think many people would argue, that we have become more and more separated. We believe more and more that we're somehow superior and on top of and more highly evolved than all that other stuff. And that, that makes us somehow separate. But we've forgotten that we came from it and we still belong to it. You know, the, the man belongs to the earth. Humans belong to the earth. The earth does not belong to humans. And we've forgotten that. And, and so the question sort of is, what would nature tell us about that? What, would, what would grade would nature give us? How would they feel about our... And, and, and more than that, is there a scenario by which we win? Not that this is a fight, but is there a scenario by which we figure out a better way to do things as, as humans, as a species, than nature has over the billions and billions of years? I mean, isn't that kind of what we think? Anyway, um, some of, I want to talk a little bit now about my main inspiration for uh, a lot of what my new thinking is, and it's a, a, a guy called Nate Hagen's. And he has a web page and a podcast, and it goes under the um, moniker um, The Great Simplification. So if you Google that, and I'll put a link in the show notes on the blog post for this episode. Uh, he talks about how we've reached this stage in part due to an exponential increase in our capacity to do work with the discovery of, well, even burning firewood, but things like coal and other fossil fuels have allowed us to do so much work and produce so, tech so quickly that we've sort of outrun our uh, natural evolutionary pace. And once you start to use resources more quickly than they can be replenished, then they're going into a deficit, uh, right? And so this is going to, in Nate's words, reach a point where we run out of energy and necessarily are forced into this simplification, where we just have to simplify what we've been doing. And I would argue that the great simplification really is just a reverting back to the natural condition. And this is kind of what I want to talk about. And so check out Nate's work, and that's going to blow your mind. He and his guests, they're doing things that I, um, you know, I wish... Uh, I was able to spend my time doing, and maybe I am, as sort of like a 
that, that, that little representative um, of, of that kind of work. Uh, but this this is so related to the evolution paradox, uh, the acid test, and using you know looking to nature to sort of determine whether or not we have a bright future, or or you know what sort of the predictions would be. Uh, and then and then briefly, I guess I talked about this already, but when I write articles about this on Medium, and when I when I put this out into the world, I get a lot of pushback from what I call technologists, people who think. Not only have we not created problems by burning these fossil fuels so quickly and creating all this amazing technology, that actually we've solved all the world's problems or are solving all the world's problems by taking this approach. You know, I would argue that human evolution took a dramatic turn like 200 to 1,500 years ago when we just started like doubling down on making new stuff and, 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 and creating new things and, and solving problems. Uh, and sometimes I wonder, you know, when I look at my parents who are in their mid-80s and they're losing their mental, their bodies are probably going to live another 15 years, but their minds kind of stopped living already, you know, and it, and it makes me think, you know, are our bodies supposed to outlive our minds? Well, we've created a world where we say, you know, isn't it great that we cured smallpox and isn't it great that we um, figured out a way to treat wastewater so we don't die of cholera? And, and, and it's hard to argue that those things aren't great. But if, on the whole, the healthcare industry, highly you know, built on tech or what I would call technological advances, all with a massive energetic cost and a massive detriment to our environment, are making us indeed live longer, but to what end? You know, do, maybe we really didn't want that. And I'm not, I don't want to open that can of worms yet because I'm kind of saving that can of worms for later. Uh, but it's, an in, it's interesting to think um, that there are two sides to this coin, but that some people so adamantly, you know, will will argue that tech we can tech our way out of any problem. And I just don't think that, if, especially the more I listen to people like Nate Hagens and and uh, the, these these energy guys that understand how much material and resource we use to get to where we are now. We most people are what Nate calls energy blind. We don't understand the costs of where we are. We just think we're smart, and so we made it here. And that's all some result of this natural evolution. And my purpose here is to, 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 to suggest that that's not true. And in fact, that nature would have led us to a different point in time, and maybe it's not too late to revert back to that or rediscover that or shift a direction and just to remember, and at least to open up the discussion for, here's kind of where we were. And it was working for several hundred thousand years. And then this happened and these changes occurred. And, you know, are there ways to sort of put the cat back in the bag or put the horses back in the barn or Pandora back in her box? <laughs> and there probably aren't. But in what way can nature inform us about, you know, and I hate to use this word, well, the, uh, about things that we, in what ways can nature inform us about how we could be living differently as individuals and as a species? I mean, that's the gist of the acid test. And, and this... Okay, all kind of goes to the concept of enough, and I'm so obsessed. And, and you and you can see I've 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 done another episode. I'll mention the show notes about what is enough. And um, in that episode, I quoted I think it's Vanderbilt, the railroad tycoon, or, or one of the the wealthiest people in the world at the time, in sort of the early 20th century, 
is quoted as saying, you know, when asked the question, what is enough, they replied, just a little bit more. I feel like this is the trap that humans have gotten into because now that we've become so reliant on things like, now that we've advanced our global values or replaced our global values from things like safety and community and having enough, enough food and sort of meeting our basic needs and not really wanting much beyond that, once we switch that to things like money, status, and power, we really made a dramatic shift uh, about and, and and sort of put the carrot so far out there that and we can never reach enough. And then, of course, Dax Shepard, I mentioned this many times on his podcast, talks all the time about how he thought when he was a starving alcoholic trying to make it in show business that, you know, his first gig would be enough or his first million dollars would be enough. And he learned that in all of these different echelons and, and the things he achieved, they were never met his needs for what enough was. And that always remained unmet until he figured out how to deal with that. And I'm not really sure he's figured it out, but uh, I myself struggle with this all the time. It's like I gave up a career and I missed that career. I missed the, the, the superficial accolades that came along with, you know, being a successful worker. Uh, and I, and I think about that for 15 years still, it's like bothered me though. Do I need this? Do I want this? And so lately I found myself thinking, you know, what if, what I had was enough. And <laughs> by all intents and purposes and definitions that I can think of, it is, you know, I still want to grow. And, th- and this is an interesting concept. You know, my buddy Paul Godola, we were talking about enough and sort of capitalism and, um, you know, the idea in economics that growth is infinite and that the only way economies work is if they continue to grow. A whole nother subject that Nate and at uh, all talk about all the time. Um, you know, you can't grow forever. And I thought, well, you can grow personally. And so I don't, I'm not suggesting that, and I don't think this was true 10, 20, 30, 100,000 years ago. I don't think humans were lazy and not growing or not evolving. I think we were in many ways. It's just, you know, personal growth requires no extra resources, right? To become more intelligent or more thoughtful or, you know, whatever the global value is that's not money, power, and status, you can, those kind of growths are free, basically. Or, you know, once you've met your basic basic metabolic needs, it doesn't cost any more to think. Or maybe, you know, fractionally more, and I would argue that it's probably worth it. Anyway, you know, that, that the, 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 the shift in global values that has happened in the, is part of this, right? And part of that shift has been wanting more. And, and, you know, conspiracy theory 101, many would argue that that's what governments want. They need you to be consumers. They need you to buy products. They need you to keep the, the financial ball rolling so that that puts more taxes and more money in their pockets and all that stuff. And, you know, I believe that. I think consumerism is related to all of this, but I don't think any of that is the problem. I mean, I think... Um, wanting those things in the first place and valuing those things is weird. And and part of any solution is going to be going so high up the stream or far up the stream that we're changing global values at that level. And we don't, we no longer find the Elon Musk and the Kardashians to be heroes, but more like people like Mr. Rogers or Mother Teresa or Gandhi or whatever, I don't even know, um, that have that represent a different uh, value set. Now, the most recent, um, I'll, I'll put this in the show notes too, I'm reading a book now called The Psychology of Money, I don't remember the author's name, but in that he talks about, uh, I think it's Kurt Vonnegut, or a couple of authors are at a party with a bunch of bigwigs, and somebody super wealthy comes in and says something to the effect of, I made more money in one day 
than this author made uh, on their entire book, which was like a bestseller. And, uh, you know, kind of puts the guy down and he just kind of shrugs it off. And his buddy, I think Kurt Vonnegut, his buddy is like, that that must hurt. And he's like, no, it doesn't because I have something he'll never have. And Vonnegut's like, what? And he said, enough. And it really is funny if you think about, if you can, if like take my personal story, if I could remove this weird need for like outside extrinsic recognition uh, for people to tell me I'm good or whatever that is all about outside my family, you know, um, like accolades or praise or, you know, ego stroking stuff. If I could remove my need from that, I would have enough. And there's a couple of other things in there that, you know, um, I, I, I feel like I still yearn for um, that are really kind of the difference between enough and whatever, which is always, again, leaping that carrot forward. Uh, and so what what if we look to nature? I, and I think everybody is going to know the answer here. Like if we apply the acid test to what is enough, you don't see hoarding in nature. I mean, you do time and time again, but I'll say that, you know, the, the, the secrets tenet of ecology is there's always exceptions to the rule. And those are really interesting and cool. They're, they're the platypus, you know, um, they're like giant birds, they're dinosaurs, whatever. They're, they're, the exceptions are cool and fun, but the patterns are what make, uh, reality. They're, they're the, the, the most frequently selected for traits. They're the middle part of that bell curve. I mean, the tails are neat. The tails are awesome. And you know, a lot of, a lot's going on in the tails and we need the tails because that's part of biodiversity is the genes and the phenotypes that are in the tails. But the story is told in the middle. And so what does nature tell us about what is enough? Well, number one, it does, it tells us that there is no competition for more crap in nature. Pretty much, nature is composed of things that use precisely enough resource for whatever it is. Space, oxygen, food, reproduction. It all balances out within the context of the system. And, you know, it might seem absurd that this species of coral reef fish lays 500,000 eggs that seems like a lot, a lot of wasted resource, right? Especially when you later find out that maybe 10 of those uh, will survive to be an adult. And you're like, well, that's a massive waste of resources. That fish was hoarding food resources to make all those extra eggs. Well, not exactly, because all those extra eggs and fish fry and juvenile fish go on to feed the rest of the food web. And so it's actually perfection, <laughs> right? It isn't hoarding. It's the way nature chose or selected Four, you know that that strategy, the R selected, you know, reproduction strategy, whatever you want to get in ecological terms, served a purpose and 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 spread that carbon or nitrogen around to a bigger area and was selected for. So it's try it, <laughs> you know. Sure, everybody uses this this. Oh, a good friend of mine just used this argument to suggest that males, why males are so dominant and always will be and females are going to be submissive and aren't important and never, there were never any matriarchal societies and all this stuff. And he used the silverback gorilla as an example. I'm like, yeah, that's a big, giant, massive exception. And it's sexy and it proves your point, but it's one of billions of species that have existed. Oh, that may be an exaggeration. I'm not sure over the whole time. 
considering everything that's been extinct. Who knows? Uh, that is not us- usual. And that's another one of those like confirmation biases, right? You know, that's, that's not really the, the case where, because, you know, I could see a silverback gorilla hoarding everything. He hoards all the females, right? He hoards all the, the power. Yeah, that, that is the exception to the rule. I think if we, you know, took a whole episode or took a whole year or took a whole career and went out in nature and looked for examples of hoarding resources, we would not find very many and that they would all be in the tails and they would all be considered exceptions. And that more often than not, what we're going to see is the hoarding, the concept didn't exist. The greed, gluttony, the Elon Musk, you know, what people do with money and power, you just didn't see that. And, you know, with, with money enough is an interesting thing because for people that never figure out how much enough money is like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and I don't know, Oprah and all these other people, it just amazes me that you just still want more money. Um, that's, that's an artifact of, of what money is. That's, there's no natural comparison to that. Um, the other sort of things like power and status that you, one can, you know, in the natural world, I just don't think, you know, popularity, <laughs> Uh, isn't really a thing, right? Because you have a more equitable, individuals are just more equitable, except for things like the silverback gorilla. Um, each individual species of most other plant and animal that I can think of are all kind of the same. And there is no capacity to have more status or power, right? Those are social Constructs, social constructs. I would argue that did not dominate villages and caves or whatever sort of other human dwellings existed before the industrial revolution. Right? I, you know, before five thousand years ago, ten thousand years ago, these things weren't that important. It's like that there were, you know, and I think it's true. Early on. I don't know how long ago, I would say longer ago than we usually tell the story, we did struggle to get our basic needs met. We struggled to find out what enough was, and we died as a result because we didn't have enough food, enough shelter, enough heat, enough warmth, enough um, people, um, enough resources. But I think we probably figured that out pretty fast. I don't think we were you know, suffering from not enough to eat nearly as much as um, we paint that picture, you know, uh, of the past. I just, I don't believe it. And we could argue that all day long and it's fine, but, but it's interesting to come up with a new scenario, right? They said, instead of rehashing the same old one where we were starving until Egypt and then oh, all of a sudden we can eat. And then most of the people were still starving after Egypt. And uh, anyway, uh, and so once we had in literally enough, there was a definition, right? There was a point where we all of a sudden we had what people refer to as luxury time. Now, I don't think we spent that luxury time hoarding or being gluttonous because we understood the connectivity. We hadn't forgotten, you know, and so it's this, this, you know, this worship of a money, power, and status is kind of like a luxury, in and of itself. It's a bad choice of how to spend our luxury time, right? Uh, And I think if there were a simple way to do it, and I think about this all the time, like from a budget standpoint, and, and work has been done, papers have been written, research has been conducted to figure out, you know, kind of like how much money is enough 
to meet our basic human needs. And it, you know, my back of the envelope calculations, and I've, and I've, I've published this in, my, in a medium article and in another episode. You know, for me as an individual, when I made fifty thousand dollars a year and had my kids was single, had my kids half the time, fifty thousand dollars a year was enough for me to do the things that I needed to do. Now, I wanted some more things. You know, that enabled me to go to the beach like once a year. It would have been nice to be able to travel like I do now to other places and had maybe another ten grand. You know, but somewhere between fifty and a hundred thousand dollars in twenty twenty three current U.S. dollars. Um, I think it gets us close, and I and I. It's terrible that people struggle to make enough to get the fifty thousand point, and I don't really know what the numbers are and the patterns and the status and the information about that group worldwide. I know it's huge, and the U.S. is a massive outlier. Um, but what's going on at the other side? You know, I would love to see an analysis that looks at people below fifty thousand U.S. dollars a year and people above a hundred thousand U.S. dollars a year and compare and contrast. And uh, you know, I'm all for things, ideas like universal basic income and things that make us more equitable, uh, equal, equanimous, because that resembles the natural condition. You didn't have these hierarchical castes you know that was the beginning of a mistake and i don't uh, i don't want to get too much more into that but i think in there are the seeds of the next five to ten episodes i'll take these pieces and sort of develop them even more but the fundamental principle holds and i hope this shed some light onto it should by now what the acid tests are look to nature to sort of answer questions about you know whether we're behaving well (laughs) as people i hope you enjoy that i hope you decide to participate i hope you'll you know subscribe to the podcast it really helps i mean it puts this out there so other people are going to find it it's like nate hagan's you know his stuff i just stumbled on it and 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 it's so brilliant and you know he's starting to build up numbers but he's growing in a very organic way too and the only way we're going to have a discourse about this stuff is if we tell other people about it. And that's what I'm doing here. I hope you enjoyed it. This has been Knowledge Plus Experience Equals Wisdom. Episode 110, The Acid Tests. Enough. I'm Chris Bercher. I'll see you next week. Take it easy.